Hello, my name is Justin DeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about one of the world's great funny mans, Jacques Tetsy. Also, one of the bad boys of mid-century arthouse cinema. <laughs> yep. Jacques Tetsy didn't make many films. He made six. But one of them is so mythic that it is one of the great comedy films. Even though a lot of people will go, it's not laugh out loud funny though. But it is one of the miracles of film. Mm -hmm. It's like you look at this movie that you're talking about and you say, the business of cinema was created to stop movies like this (laughs) getting made. And that movie is playtime, but I want to build up to it first. Mm -hmm. Were you someone that watched Jacques Tetsy films when you were coming up and learning about cinema? I mean, I I didn't discover them when I was a kid, Mm. but... I don't think anybody (laughs) in North America did. No, um, but yeah, he was definitely somebody who, when I was an undergrad, I fell in love with. Mm -hmm. And you just came to him now. Yes, I had never watched any of his films. I think principally because... People had said stuff like, ah, it is a very gentle comedy. And I was like, oh, man, I got to be in the right frame of mind for that. And I don't know what prompted me. I think I probably read one of those, like, solid gold Jonathan Rosenbaum takes on Tetsy. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch Playtime. And oh, man, did I laugh. And this is the thing about Tetsy is that he kind of dials in to one of the things that is like almost an instant trigger for me when it comes to comedy. And that's the little absurdities (laughs) that are just like, seen, not focused on, and then moved past. I'm someone who, I'm famous during movies, that will be like, <laughs> when no one else laughs, because I notice like a little sing somewhere. And that's what Tetsi wants his audience to do all the time. His movies are full of these long shots that are dense with visual information. And, you know, he's the poet of discomfort. Mm-hmm. Uncomfortable chairs, slippery floors, unpleasant breezes. When you say the poet of discomfort, you think of like... Ricky Gervais is the office, and that's not really the level that he's playing on. It's the everyday annoyances, not not aggressive humiliations, mm-hmm. although there are some of those. In <laughs> yes, movies. there are. But yeah, like struggling with a salt shaker or the sound that a door makes when it opens and closes. The sound that a cushion makes when you sit on it, the yeah. air just letting out of it. People will often say that like Tetsi doesn't really have punchlines to his gags Mm -hmm. a lot of the times it's like observations of what's going on or just the sound of something yes and that the way that he mixes it and you just kind of like dial into it that's what's comedic about it now tati is considered one of the great screen comedians up there with your chaplains your keatons your jerry lewis's Uh, But what's weird is, unlike them, he's not my favorite part of his movies. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I love him as a comedian, but unlike Chaplin or Keaton, there's nothing virtuosic about his character, Monsieur Hulot. I think uh, Tati would agree with you that he tried to phase that out as the movies went along as well. And like, Tati is a talented physical comedian. Mm -hmm. You can see it if you watch him, but Hulot is so ordinary, and Tati is such an ordinary-looking guy you know, he's very dorky, he's gangly, he's got a kind of a dorky looking overcoat and an umbrella. Unlike those other comedians, he genuinely is an everyman. But I also think he's an agent of chaos within the kind of every day that he stumbles into. It's true that in so many of his movies, uh, well, so many, in the movies that he made, oftentimes it's a scene of rigorous order 
Um, and then he comes in and it's like uh, the Rube Goldberg device that sets off a catastrophe. But unlike one of the great comedians, Jerry Lewis, he is not someone that draws attention to the acts that he's doing. Mm -hmm. Like Jerry Lewis... He was famous on stage and in his films for being like, whoa, and like crashing into things and reacting to it. The joke about Tetsuya's Monsieur Hulu is oftentimes he doesn't even notice the yeah. discomfort that he's causing to other people. And Hulu is only one part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I mean, we watched Monsieur Hulu's Holiday, which was his breakthrough film, and I was surprised at how often Hulot drifts out of the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's as much about the other people at this resort as it is about him. Well, the interesting about Tetsi is that he did kind of make his career on doing this um, stage act called The Silent Sports, where he would kind of pantomime a bunch of sports Mm -hmm. without any props, and that's Mm -hmm. what the joke would be. And even though that's what made him famous, what really interests him in these movies is you seeing the everyday and noticing a little absurdity in it. Mm-hmm. Whether it be like in um, Les Vacances uh, de Monsieur Hulot, the fact that everybody is kind of silent and miserable in the parlor of this vacation place. Mm-hmm. But then they get very angry when uh, Hulot comes in and opens the door and the wind just kind of like annoyingly mm-hmm. blows everything. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't notice every time that he does it. And yeah, as you said, he's this master of sound design where the kitchen in that movie, every time the door opens, like, <laughs> yeah, most of his movies were shot silent. And then all of his movies were shot silent. And sound effects were, were very carefully added after sort of like. Do you remember in Chaplin's Modern Times, Mm -hmm. uh, the the way sound effects are used in that? Um, So these sound effects come as these little little shocks in this this desert of silence. I think that the thing with Tetsi that you have to pay attention to is that it's all so exact, but it looks like nothing is happening on screen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never seen his film as an audience, but I'd be fascinated to hear like a pocket of the audience laughing and another Mm -hmm. pocket of the audience laughing. Because even in his second feature film, Les Vacances de Monsieur Hulot, you aren't told where to look and where to laugh. I mean, there's a very clear, brilliant slapstick, like the scene where uh, Tetsi sits in a boat and starts painting a chair and the paint bucket just keeps being taken out by the water yeah. and coming back on a on a different side like the joke is just that this is happening no one is really being embarrassed mm-hmm. Tetsi doesn't even notice what's going on and yeah there isn't a punchline yeah. it's just an amusing I, little moment technically that one does because he stands up and he breaks the boat oh yeah and then it, and then it <laughs> looks like he's a shark yes, when, that's well right. it's too it's too complicated to explain how yep. that happens so it's like a mix of all of that that sometimes you'll be watching a scene you'll be going like is that the joke I'm not quite sure. I mean, Tetsi would say that every frame of the majority of his movies, it was all him. Mm-hmm. Like, the fascinating thing about his career is that I assumed he came from some kind of money and was able to make this, these pictures, but he didn't. He had to, like, scrounge and save, and that's essentially why he only made six feature films. Like, mm-hmm. his first one, Jour de Fight, he was an innovator right from the get-go because he shot it in color and in black and white at the same time. Uh-huh. The black and white one just being a backup one because color had never been done in France. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was the um, production plant that said, oh, we'll process your film. We're just building our um, facilities now. Shut down before they processed one feet of film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the color thing was lost till the 90s when it was rediscovered and finally developed. How did you find Jour de Fête? Uh, I like Jour de Fête. 
it's definitely experimental and he's figuring out what he wants mm. to do uh, it's a story about a small village that kind of like a traveling circus comes and uh, Tetsi plays a um, mailman called Francois who essentially what happens at the end is that he th- sees a um, documentary on the American mailman and he decides, all right, I'm going to go as fast as American mailmen do, which leads to (laughs) hilarious kind of slapstick involving him and his bicycle. It has all like the little tetsy trademarks from the first scene where the um, caravan is arriving and a bunch of horses see a bunch of wooden horses Mm -hmm. and the horses are like, like they're scared Mm -hmm. as if the, the reality and the unreality are coming together. And if he had been able to release his color version at the time, he was doing all the stuff that he would do later on that the little village is all in black and white colors and then the fair is all this colorful stuff. But when the fair leaves, the village goes back to these drab colors. Well, with Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, that's the movie where he hit upon um, his his beloved character and he uh, really solidified the style of comedy. And Monsieur Hulot's Holiday was a worldwide hit. It was a major art house hit in the United States. Was it dubbed in English? I feel like it must have been, because it must be so easy to dub his films. Like, Tetsi... There's very little dialogue. And he doesn't seem to care that you can understand what he's saying, because I have to say, if you hear it in French, this is what his characters sound like. And I'm surprised that sometimes the subtitles translate it. I'm like, well, I don't think he wants you to understand what they're saying. I mean, some of his movies have English dialogue. Yes, they do. It's it's exactly exactly like that. that. Uh, And Monsieur Lewis Holiday, by the way, Academy Award nominee for Best Original Screenplay. Screenplay? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the only explanation for that, I think... Slim Pickens that year? And very popular? uh, Yeah, I think it was very popular, and also it probably wasn't France's Oscar submission. I mean, like, his films are never plot-heavy, but they're so kind of meticulous in the way that they're built. Like, you're living in this world, even in the holiday film, where, like, you'll see this character, and then they'll appear 30 minutes later doing something in the background of a scene. Yes. (laughs) And, yeah, that's one of the things I love about his movie, and will apply even more later, is the fact that he creates these worlds where there are things happening in all parts of the frame and you feel like there's a whole world outside of the frame mm-hmm. as well. And like uh, all the world's a stage, you know, and we're all we're all actors in this one big drama. And there's always parts in his movies where you feel like you either just miss the joke or mm-hmm. the joke is about to come. Yeah. And I mean that in the nicest way possible. It's about the notes he doesn't play, mm-hmm. man. <laughs> one of the things I like about him, too, and you see it in all his movies, uh, including Mr. Hulo's holiday is that like he really likes people he likes them for for their eccentricities and their bad behavior and he likes background people and human oddities and he, he's totally unconcerned with whether or not a character's little bit of business is irrelevant to the film. I don't think he looks down on any of his characters. Yeah. He never He's never going like, ha ha, look at him. He's a joke. Like, there's mm. sympathy for everybody on screen. And so in 1958, with his follow-up movie, Mon Oncle, which was, uh, I think, just about as big a worldwide success as Hulot's Holiday was, uh, that was a movie where you start to really see him as a social commentator. And... One of the things that, despite its satiric elements, makes it such a kind of warm and lovable movie is the fact that he loves his character so Mm. much. Right here, he's doing what he would master in playtime, the dichotomy between the rural setting and this absurd kind of like, ah, this is the technology of now setting. Yeah, so 
Hulot is in the movie and he's in this movie kind of an unemployed working class guy and he lives in a working class neighborhood which is you know cobblestones it's a historic district lots of people milling about in the streets all the buildings are crooked and weird and Mm. falling apart and meanwhile his wealthy sister lives with her husband in this ultra modern suburban neighborhood where they're living in this absurd like Bauhaus style house completely impractical in its construction but it has all the latest technology uh, just colors all over the place just being Tetsi's first uh, release color film but extremely sparse furnishing and what furnishing there is is uh, like impossible to sit on or mm-hmm. use in any practical way and there are all these irrelevant mechanics there like they have this this fish fountain oh, that, that they- joke is so funny every time that I because there's so much going on so there's there's this fish fountain and the joke is not just how absurd it looks but it's that every time someone comes to the gates the wife of the house will turn the fish fountain on to like show it off. And if it's somebody that she doesn't care about, like a delivery man, she then like angrily turns it off. (laughs) But what's funny about that joke is that at one point you realize that when she turns it on, even if you're on the other side of the gate, you can see it shoot up into the air and it looks super weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the person on the other side of the gate can figure out that it wasn't on (laughs) before. Uh, And uh, the house with its absurd geography and its weird furniture, everybody who's in the house in- insists on playing by the rules of the house. So there are these ridiculous, like, stone walkways in the garden where it's, like, a couple of stones dispersed and you're supposed to walk on them. And people insist on walking on these stones, like, like leaping from stone to stone <laughs> instead of touching the grass around them. And most of the comedy beyond seeing people do this absurd stuff is Tetsi in this situation as his Ulo character trying to figure out how to navigate all this stuff. There's a scene where he goes into the kitchen and he touches a weird object that's really hot. Mm -hmm. And then for the next minute, he's kind of like afraid to touch anything else because that could be hot as well. Mm -hmm. And then a water pot falls out of a cupboard and it bounces. So then he has a bunch of fun bouncing the water thing. Then he grabs a glass and throws it, expecting it to bounce only for it to smash. Then he just kicks it underneath the stove. So, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that Tati prefers the kooky, crumbling, Hulot neighborhood to the ultra-modern, soulless neighborhood of Hulot's uh, sister and brother-in-law. But he makes the ultra-modern house look kind of cool. It looks cool, but what he's trying to say is, why would anybody want to live in this? Yeah. <laughs> like, because the ultra-modernist house, all these beautiful shapes, the garden is broken up into sections, <laughs> and it exists this cool because it will slowly be kind of like chipped away throughout the film. I mean, I think what makes him an effective satirist, though, is the fact that he doesn't judge this family for wanting to have this house Mm. because he pities them. Look look at it. It looks cool. I would not want to live there. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't want to live there, but it's like, this is what the world, what the world around us is telling us is the thing you're supposed to aspire to. And you know, why wouldn't you aspire to it? Everybody's telling you it's ultra modern. Uh, But I think even in that movie, Tetsi shows that like all the neighbors get together and they sit there in stone silence, (laughs) unsure of what to say until stuff starts to break down. And that's when they become alive. That's when they start to laugh. The great thing about Tetsi is that his films do have kind of like a formless feel as you're watching them but I think that he and his screenwriter are like so precise with the mm-hmm. the gags like whether it be the dad giving his son like hey look I got you a nice new train and the son's like 
eh. And then Tetsu comes with, like, a paper man, and the son's like, oh, yeah, so excited. Honestly, I felt so bad for, like, the, the father yes. in, in that scene. I felt for him. Because <laughs> he tries to give everything to his son. Yeah. But he just can't connect with him because he doesn't understand that's not what the boy wants. I mean, I think Monocle is basically, like, like a perfect film. But what it does, like, it is a miniature for the gigantic universe universe that, that is, is playtime. playtime i think playtime is a perfect film and i know people oh, yeah. have said like oh it's very messy and i'm like Mm-mm. it's like it's like a no, whole planet that you move into nothing is out of place <laughs> no nothing i mean so tetsi was known as kind of very easygoing on set he would get a little frustrated but on playtime supposedly he went like manic where everything had to be exact to his specifications for people that don't know playtime is another plotless film that is just a day in the life of a city most of it that tetsi built outside this is a movie that took three years to make including Mm. nine months of editing and God knows how many months of shooting. He built a whole little city for it, you know, a, cu- a couple of blocks. Uh, he would later say that when, when people asked him how much it cost, he said, well, basically it costs the amount that if I cast Sophia Loren as the lead. <laughs> yes. So so the city is the star of the movie, just as Sophia Loren is the star of one of her movies. But it's like 500,000 square feet. You and know. Uh, spoiler, Tetsi paid for it all himself pretty much and it bankrupted him. Yeah. But... Let's talk about the quality of the film. Shot on 70 millimeter. Mm. And Tetsi, uh, one of the reasons he didn't make that much money on the film is he refused to let it be shown in anything but 70 millimeter. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I know that Tati is like satirizing this kind of architecture that was sweeping Paris at the time, this ultra modern uh, glass and steel architecture. But man, he makes it look good. The picture starts in the airport. Just like you're arriving to the city, just like all the characters are, and the frame is so big, and you're not sure where to look, and Tetsi is not telling you where to look either. It's almost as if you're sitting in the airport, just kind of like looking around, Mm -hmm. waiting for what direction to go to, as... I don't even want to call them like gags are happening in frame because sometimes stuff is happening, sometimes it's not. But there's always like these little bits of business, whether it be in that scene, what you think is a mannequin in the background slowly moving every few seconds. Yeah. And for a a long time, you keep seeing people in beige overcoats who look like they might be Monsieur Hulot. Yeah. Well, and so the audience is like, oh, so Monsieur Hulot is going to come, right? He's going to come. But no, it's not Hulot. And then by the time Hulot actually shows up, you kind of do a double take. It's like, oh, it actually is Hulot. it's like um, at one point a character actually grabs one of the people in the trench coat like Monsieur Hulot, Monsieur Hulot. And he's like, uh, no, I'm not Monsieur Hulot. Yeah. And then gradually characters are not introduced so much as revealed mm-hmm. or they, they eventually make their presence known. There's a group of American tourists mm-hmm. um, who all like to shop. Yes. Uh, except for one. Ooh, I wonder what American products they have here. Yeah. In the tourism bureau, it's the same photo of the nondescript building oh, with a monument in front of it. Yeah, it's okay. So, you know, Tati here is criticizing how... You know, after the Second World War, every city started to look exactly the same. So it, it's like, visit London, visit yeah. Mexico, visit this. And it's all the same building. Yeah. Oh, man. A hilarious joke is that people are constantly looking in windows or opening glass doors. And you see the reflection of like a Paris monument. Yeah, like the Eiffel Tower. But you never actually see the Eiffel yeah. Tower in frame. And, you know, the only bit of greenery in the whole movie is this one little flower booth mm-hmm. that's on the street. And the female character who 
is sort of the most sympathetic one who is trying to find the real Paris. She, she's like looking at this, looking at these flowers, like this is the real Paris. Even though she tries to take a photo of the real Paris and she keeps trying to wave away people who are walking through frame. Anybody who hasn't seen Playtime is probably just completely lost right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, it is it is basically a plotless movie, but it has, I guess, four main sections. There's the airport, the second section at this big office complex where Monsieur Hulot goes and he tries to attend a meeting but he keeps getting lost amidst all this glass and steel. So funny. There's a gag where he's chasing after this one man and it's crazy I've never seen this gag in a movie before but because all the buildings look the same, the man walks across the building that Tetsi is in, but his reflection is reflected in the building across from them. Yeah, it's like the lady from Shanghai. <laughs> yeah, so he's like, hey, are you over there? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, come over here. And then they yeah. change buildings, and they can never catch each other, even though sometimes they're literally a wall apart. <laughs> and then Hulo then finds himself lost in this uh, I guess it's like an expo, like mm. a, like a, a sales fair with all these identical booths all selling basically identical products. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And people are confusing Tetsi for like a salesman and then he gets a salesman angry at him. And there's all these like things happening in the background and you're trying to like follow everything. And Tetsi is never going, look at this over here. Mm-hmm. Like your only point of reference is Monsieur Hulu. And that's what you're looking for all the time. And Tetsi is just like, screw you, I'm not going to give it. And then there's the third section where Hulot meets uh, an old army buddy and goes to his apartment. And the, the apartment is this absolutely monstrous concrete building with these gigantic floor-to-ceiling windows where the Tati's camera looks at it head-on so you see it's like the Hollywood squares you know (laughs) it's like these four squares with glass where you see what's happening inside the windows of each of them and that entire scene plays from the outside Mm -hmm. and you never hear what they're saying on the inside yeah because you see all the different apartments and what's going on and you can kind of look at whatever you want to look at and he does a perspective uh trick where it looks like two apartments facing each other are reacting to each other when really they're both watching the same TV show. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the longest section of the movie is this scene at a chic Paris nightclub where all the tourists and Hulot and all the characters that we've seen, the city is one big stage in this movie. So characters keep coming in and out and uh, eventually you become acquainted with them. But they're all at this nightclub, which is brand new and is newly opened. Well, it's not done. (laughs) It's not quite done, but it's very high tech. And then uh, disaster strikes and things keep falling apart, but it only makes the night better. Yes. I mean, that's the whole point of the sequence, which is that people only truly start having fun when things start falling apart. Yeah. And I mean... This is another reason why Tati is such an effective satirist, because, again, he likes these people and he thinks that humanity wins, Mm -hmm. basically. And they do. Yeah. And it never quite goes in the direction you think. You always expect it to go maybe a little bit bigger or to veer left when it veers right. Or that's going to be a bigger disaster. The whole place is going to go up in flames. It never does. Never does. In fact, all the people end up having a great time and they... Uh, And they have a great time because the place is falling apart. And the gag in that sequence is the cumulative effect 
of all these little things going wrong. Mm. The fact that all the chairs imprint the image of a crown on people's back. Yeah. And as you're watching the scene, you see all this stuff happening and adding up. And it's just like, you're either going to go with it or you're going to sit there going, well, why isn't it bigger? Yeah. Like, why aren't people taking crazy pratfalls? Oh, I also love that gag where the doorman, <laughs> like the door, the glass door falls apart, but the doorman just stays there holding the doorknob and pretending to open a door and no one ever calls him on it they (laughs) all just walk through hey man it's a new technology and you know jonathan rosenbaum who's a huge fan and i believe was also uh worked for tati at one point Mm -hmm. uh i think this is one of his favorite movies and he's often talked about the idea that it's a very democratic film the fact that Tati subsumes or lets Hulot recede into the background, puts Hulot on equal footing with all these other characters, and also gives you enormous amount of freedom in what you can look at. Um, yeah, he regards it as a very democratic film. Did you know that uh, another one of the gags in the film is that Jacques Tetsi plays multiple different characters in different yeah, costumes? Yeah, I, I did read that, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even notice that I, I was looking for yeah. Yeah. Well, because your eye's on Hulot. Yeah, or you're going towards other stuff because you're like, oh, I think the story's going to go here now, mm-hmm. and then it just swerves in a different direction. But you could absolutely watch this movie a bunch of times and just have different experiences mm-hmm. with it. And. I do think that one of the issues with the film is that it demands a lot from its audience. Not in a, like, this is hard kind of way, Mm -hmm. but that you need to interact with this film Mm -hmm. in a way that other films don't demand of you. Now, this movie, unfortunately, not a box office success. Nope. Tati spent the rest of his life paying for it, basically. (laughs) Yep. Uh, He returned a few years later with Trafic, Mm -hmm. which I think is a very good movie. Uh, Uh, Yeah, I think it's funny. I mean, it's hard not to see it as a bit of a come down after playtime because Hulot is central again. uh, I mean, the best gags are usually the ones that don't necessarily involve Hulot, including an insane car crash sequence. Yeah. (laughs) That the slapstick stuff that happens in that scene is funny in itself. But what's even funnier is the way that people just kind of like stretch after it happens (laughs) and start collecting all the pieces that fell away from their car. Yeah. Or the fact that they're racing to this auto show to present this gadget-filled car, and by the time they get there, it's too late, and it was all for naught. So, you know, Trafic is also a challenging movie. It is. It's not Mon Oncle again. No, it's not giving you, like, all these big gags, mm-hmm. and it's like Playtime, going in a million different directions. Like, for a film that stars Hulot, it spends a lot of time not with him, following mm-hmm. other characters doing stuff. So, yeah, after Trafic, he made another film called A Parade, which was essentially just him filming a circus. It was shot in three days. And it was shot on video. And I saw it years ago and I, I wasn't that impressed by it. But I think... I it was an experiment for him. I mean, I know that Rosenbaum uh, has made a brave case for mm-hmm. it. And I keep feeling like I ought to give it another chance because it was hard to watch it and not think about playtime and think, well, isn't this a come down from that? I, I mean, after playtime, Tetsi, both Trafic and Parade or Parade, if I want to say everything in the French way, like, he had to get funding from other countries to be able to make these movies. Like, he couldn't get anything in France anymore, which is so insane to me, but goes to show why his classic films are the masterpieces that they are, is that, like, he would budge on things. Like, they, these things need to be done his way. He had a very specific methodology, and if he went away from that then why make the film at all? I mean, the strange thing is he only made six films, but 
I'm not desperate for more. No, I, I, I think you got enough there. Like, I, I just feel like in those six films, he made enough films for like... Why don't you just watch Playtime again? Yeah. Because there's going to be other stuff that you haven't seen yeah. that you'll be able to catch. Did you ever see The Illusionist? Yeah, I did. I liked it. Yeah, I didn't see it, but now I want to watch it. Yeah. Uh, this is a film that was directed by the uh, filmmaker behind uh, The Triplets of Belleville, and he adapted an unfilmed Tetsi script mm-hmm. that Tetsi worked on forever and ever and ever, and he gave up on it because he said every time I look at it, I age 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it was done in animated form, and I hear it's uh, very respectful to his legacy, even though some people believed it was a form of exploitation, considering that Tetsi could not sign off on this, and they did use his likeness. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's not really for me for, <laughs> nope. for me to say. It's I, just I, for me to enjoy. I find it a very charming and melancholy uh, and beautiful film. So do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Cody Johnson, and he goes, Hey guys, love the podcast. It's a great mix of history, personal anecdotes, and extensive knowledge on pornos. <laughs> I also recommend the Patreon feed to anyone still on the fence. I finally finished Tom Anderson's Los Angeles Plays itself and loved his approach to film theory through examination of specific locations. I was wondering if you all would be interested in doing an episode focusing on filmmakers' use of location as character throughout their filmographies. I'd really like to hear about films or filmmakers that you really love for their evocative use of location and how it affected your real-world perception of that place. Thanks again! Ah, New York. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter one. I know he, that. I was he adored New York. To break into your Woody Allen accent. <laughs> uh, you know, when I think of that, you think of like Wong Kar Wai and the way that he portrays Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, the classic Toronto pictures. Chloe. Spain. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, whenever I'm at Cafe Diplomatico... <laughs> Whenever I walk past Alan Gardens, I think of Liam Neeson getting a hand job there. <laughs> That's right. In the classic um, Adam McGoin film. And you know, whenever I see Lake Ontario, I think of the police academy just <laughs> jet skiing there. In, did they shoot in, the police academy films in, there? They did. In uh, part three, uh, back in training, I believe it was. No mission to Moscow. Uh, uh, well, what is? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, definitely, I think for me, like a, a lot of the New York filmmakers mm-hmm. like, you know, Spike Lee or... Uh, I don't know, name any of them. Other than that, I don't know how conscious I am of specific locations when the movies are made. I'm not somebody who, like, if I'm near somewhere where they shot something, I'm like, oh, I gotta visit it! I don't know why that I don't have that attraction to that if stuff. If I ever get back to Los Angeles, I'd like to do an Ed Wood tour of Los Angeles. I'm shocked that you didn't when you went... Oh, I guess well, you were I was a kid, a kid yeah. when I went. Um, and the only reason that I that I haven't gone back is because I'm afraid of driving. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. But, you know... You're a real Monsieur Hulot in traffic. <laughs> yeah, sooner or later I'll have to. Uh, yeah, I would like to take an Ed Wood tour, actually. If I did that, that, that would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's where the studio used to be. Now it's... Uh, what is it? It's like a... I can't remember. It's behind the... Uh, folks, if we have any Los Angeles listeners, go to... I think it's the Gold Diggers Cafe and mm. uh, or... The the Gold Diggers Strip Club, whatever it is. Behind there, in the alley behind, was the studio where they shot Plan 9 from Outer Space. Also, Los Angeles listeners, go to <laughs> Play- Playboy Liquor at Yucca and Cuenga, which is uh, apparently not a very nice neighborhood to be in, but that is the liquor store that Ed himself patronized in his dying days. You could be in Ed Wood yourself. Is it still open? Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, we stayed open thanks to Mr. Wood over there. We would have gone under. I think it's just across the street from the apartment that he was kicked out of. So, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I'm having a heart attack! <laughs> I haven't yelled that in a while. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? 
I say that, but I know if I went to Los Angeles, I'd probably visit some locations yeah. of some obscure film where I'd be like, ooh, this is where they shot Hologram Man. That's where the car flipped over. Yeah. Uh, but thanks for the letter. That's something to consider if we could talk about a place mm. and the films that surround it versus um, just a filmmaker or an actor. I think we would be very qualified to talk about Toronto. Yes. We've talked about this before, doing a Toronto episode. Let's do it. And we're like, I guess we'll talk about last night. When Scott we, Pilgrim yeah, versus the world. When we blow off the dust of the DVD that I have. Yeah, okay, we can do better than that. No, we, yeah, we can do Toronto. We can do definitely Chloe. All right, so our next letter is from Eric J, and it goes, New listener, big fan. Nice. Dear Justin and Will, I just discovered your podcast, and I love it. I've been combing through your archives of past episodes, and I'm now consuming one per day. Oof. That's dangerous. Usually when I am at the gym, more than a few times I've doubled over in laughter while listening to you guys on the treadmill to the confusion of other gym patrons. While I found many other film podcasts either boring or mean-spirited, the Important Cinema Club is rare in its good-natured appreciation of what the snobs have deemed high and low art. Well, thank you. Keep doing your thing. This is to the other listeners out there who, like me, are new to this podcast and are choosing what episodes to listen to. Oh, goodness. I understand your inclination is to pick ones about directors you are at least passingly familiar with, but don't be afraid to branch out. By accident, I listened to the Lena Wertmuller episode. Oh, God. <laughs> having never watched a movie of hers and found Will and Justin's discussion fascinating, even though the hosts were not particularly enthused by her output. Well, you know who is enthused by her output is... The Academy! The Academy, which today just announced that Lena Wertmuller is one of their four Lifetime Achievement Award nominees, because I guess they were looking through the list of female directors. And <laughs> they just searched female directors in Google, and that's one of the ones they like, came yeah, well, I guess we gotta give it to her. I often used to wonder... Geez, why don't you hear much about Lena Wertmuller? There's so much appetite for uh, female filmmakers now. And then I saw her, her movies, and I know I know why. <laughs> um, he also offers a bunch of suggestions here. And one of them is a fun one, out-of-print classics. He says, when is The Mother and the Whore going to be released on anything besides the Japanese VHS that costs $100 on Amazon? Oh, I like that idea. That's a really good idea about movies that are not really available. What are some... Because almost everything is available now, like... King Lear. King Lear. <laughs> I mean, there, was, there used to be so many movies that were like gray market movies, a lot like Skidoo, for mm. example, but that's been released. I, uh, I know that The Mother and the Whore played in France in high definition. Mm. I don't know why it hasn't been released. I love that movie. Uh, there there's that Vincent Gallo movie that yes! he played at festivals and then he would not release after because of the bad vibes of the public. <laughs> Can we just talk about movies we haven't seen and can't <laughs> <Yeah>. see? <laughs> ah, the ending of Magnificent Ambersons. <laughs> no, I would actually like to talk about movies that are widely unavailable and some of them that probably cannot ever be seen in good versions because the materials just don't exist. And then there are some that are, haven't been released because of rights issues like John Waters' first movie, Mondo Trasho. When he made it, he scored it entirely with just like, you know, music. <laughs> tracks, so like yeah. if you watch, like he uses Somewhere Over the Rainbow at some point. <laughs> like, good luck licensing all that music. Yeah, and I'm sure that's available in shady, like yeah, gray market bootlegs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's never going to get a Criterion release by any stretch of the imagination no. that rights like music rights issue is a big one for a lot of like cult films california split by robert altman has has never been released in its original theatrical version because of uh music rights issues which mm. is crazy to me i mean there's a lot of movies 
that they would change the music on the release yeah. DVD version. Uh, one of them, I, the only one that comes to mind, Return of the Living Dead Part 2, for a long time, it was like had different music tracks. But mm. I believe it was recently released. Not a good movie. <laughs> would not uh, recommend checking out both versions. Mm. Um, so thank you very much for the letter, Eric. And this week on our Patreon, we talk about something that is very important to both of us. Jean-Luc Godard's King Lear. We hinted at it last week, and we're talking about it for 20 minutes this week. Uh, yep, I have nothing to say. You just had, like, a stone, <laughs> cold expression on your face. I, I I literally thought, like, have I had a heart attack and died? Because <laughs> Will's face is not moving. I, I just realized that I, like, sat all my King Lear Godard <laughs> material, and I have nothing else to add. Yeah. So you'll have to find out. By listening to the Patreon episode. Yeah. You can become a subscriber by going to patreon.com slash Club and becoming a subscriber for five bucks. So what are we doing next week, Will? We are talking about the Hong Kong filmmaker An Hui. I've seen a simple life, but I think that's it. Oh, I, I, I saw I saw the postmodern life of my aunt. At, <laughs> what is that? TIFF. That was a, one of her lesser films. It played at TIFF a long time ago. But she's been mm-hmm. in the industry for a really long time. She's done everything from wuxia pictures to straight up dramas. Straight up dramas is you was mostly her bread and butter. Yeah, and considered one of the great Hong Kong filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to jump into her filmography. I especially got. I'm intrigued when I learned that she wrote her um, dissertation in university when she was a literature uh, student on Alain Robbe So um, I'm a fan of his writing and his films. So maybe there'll be some of that magic in her pictures as well. Maybe. All right. So that'll be talking about next week. My name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here. Just want to remind you that if you haven't yet, please follow us on Twitter at IMPRT Cinema Club. You can follow Will at Will Sloan ESQ, and you can follow me at DeClue J. That's D E C L O U X, and then the letter J. On Letterboxd, you can follow me. My name is Justin DeClue, and Will Sloan is just Will Sloan. You can also follow us on Facebook by searching The Important Cinema Club, and I'd also like to thank our new Patreon subscribers that include Felix Dembinski, Joseph DeLeo, Eric Gilliland, Chase P. Bernstein, James Baker, and Alexandru Terdia. Thank you very much for subscribing, and I hope you enjoy the Patreon episodes. And finally, I'd like to ask people, where did you hear about The Important Cinema Club? How did you get hooked to listening? You can just let me know by sending me a Twitter message, and I would really appreciate it. All right, on with the regular scheduled programming. Justin, who's your favorite giant monster? Hmm. Camera's up there. King Kong had his moments. Yeah, Uh, I definitely love... Craw the sea monster from Full Moon Entertainment's Monster Island production label. I like that uh, gigantic serpent from Godfrey Ho's <laughs> Thunder of Gigantic Serpent. Who can forget the giant claw as well? Oh, of course. But, you know, if I had to pick just one, it would probably be Godzilla. We've talked about Godzilla. Wait, who? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Gojira. Ah, yes, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> Yes, Godzilla, uh, me and Will, we love them. And there was just a Godzilla film released in theaters that was shot in Hollywood? And he wasn't a big T-Rex for some reason? Well, I think this is the movie we've been waiting for our whole lives. <laughs> which is which is to say that it is an American Godzilla movie that is not a complete embarrassment. Yes, uh, made by a director and writer 
who actually likes Godzilla. None of that bullshit that when you ask a director, oh, which ones did you watch to, like, gain inspiration? They go, huh, I've been preparing all my life for these movies. I didn't need to watch anything. Uh, so you didn't like the Gareth Edwards Godzilla? I saw it once. I saw it in D-Box. <laughs> and I had a fun time with it. Mm-hmm. And I've felt... No need to revisit it since then. Why would I? I can just watch like a fun Godzilla movie instead. Yeah, my feelings about the Gareth Edwards Godzilla were uh, not enough Godzilla in it. And the scenes in between Godzilla being in it, boring. It's boring. Aaron Taylor Johnson, fuck that guy. Wait, wait, wait. What about the post-human blockbuster? Oh, yeah. You know what that means? Boring characters. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Every scene is just stock. (laughs) Give me monsters. And it was definitely made by people who thought they were better than the Godzilla movies. I mean, if you really want that, think about uh, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. At least he was trying to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> you, like, I'll give that to Roland Emmerich, as opposed to Gareth Edwards, who you feel the entire time is very stone-faced and uh, doesn't really know what he's doing, because supposedly, just like Rogue One, that film was mostly directed by people who are not credited. But, so Michael Doherty, Godzilla King of the Monsters, comes out, promises with Rodan, promises with King Ghidorah. All right, I mean, me and Will are going to go see it. We love all these characters. Mm-hmm. So we sit down in the audience, and we just let it just roll on us like a wave. And it was fun. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I had uh, most of the things I want from a Godzilla movie. Had a lot of monsters. It had good actors who are saying the Godzilla dialogue. <laughs> yep. We're like, you know, man uh, often thinks he can conquer nature, but when he pollutes and when he does this and that, sooner or later, nature will will come back at us. You know, that sort of thing. King Ghidorah has never had more character than in any of the other films, where most of the time he's just a monster whose head is dangling on strings. You know how in the 60s Godzilla movies, you would have a little kid who, for some reason, would always be at the meetings with government officials, and he'd be like, no, you must understand, Godzilla is like this. Well, this is Kyle Chandler in the movie. So, you know, this is a film that, like, I feel like Michael Doherty, he watched all these Godzilla films, and he went, I'm going to give the best version of that I can do of these movies. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did, within the means that he had. Like, would it have been nice if some of the fights did not take place in dust all the time? Yes, mm-hmm. it would have. Would have been nice if the camera could have just focused on the monsters fighting instead of going back to the humans to link them all the time? Yeah, I would have very much liked that, but I did enjoy how the humans were always involved in what was going on, and they actually had an impact. I liked Godzilla himself. I thought he was very big, mm-hmm. and it's true that Godzilla was fat. Yeah, that's and, right. And I like that Godzilla was fat, because that means he's been eating a lot of trains and people, and he's been <laughs> gaining weight, and that makes him scary. It's also a film where we visit Seatopia. Yeah. <laughs> Holy so, shit. So this movie is full of just little references to Godzilla lore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Justin and me, we're fist bumping. We're, <laughs> yep. we're, it's the Peanuts, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's it's right. It's the Mothra song. Yeah, the Mothra song in an American Godzilla movie. And then Baffling. when they go to Seatopia. <laughs> like, oh, man. That, so for people that don't know, Seatopia is featured in one of the most malign Godzilla films, but one of the most fun, Godzilla vs. Megalon. <laughs> so the fact that the film does a straight-faced version of that is amazing to me. All I was missing was a little Italian man and a toga. (laughs) I mean, the fact that when Godzilla shows up, the Godzilla theme plays, Mm. it's like, oh yeah, feels good. And then, you know, we're in spoiler territory here. Yeah. 
the end credits play to the Blue Oyster Cult Godzilla song, <laughs> yeah. and and I was really happy. And and it ends with a dedication to the suit actors that passed away that played Godzilla. And also, it has a dedication to the film's executive producer, whose uh, name I'm forgetting right now, Bano, mm-hmm. uh, was his... Yeah, the director of Godzilla versus Hedera, yeah. or Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. Yeah, who gets an executive producer credit on this film. I mean, this is a film made by people who obviously love this franchise and did their best and it made no money and but, uh, yeah. yeah you know what it made its budget back but I think it's going to be considered a failure especially critically because whew, the people have a field day with this one and you know it's not my place to say like oh you have to like this stuff but when you look at like the other Godzilla film has something like I don't know 85% on Rotten Tomatoes and this has 39% on Rotten Tomatoes. Really? Yes. I, I don't know. I don't know what people's <laughs> problem is. I thought this was fun. I feel like producers are and the director are sitting there and he's like, what do you want? Yeah. I don't know what you want. I think what people want are superhero movies because it's recognizable and they want their blockbusters not to have too much fun <laughs> because if you have too much fun and you don't gel with it, that is more offensive than you know something being dour and serious Mm -hmm. it's weird but like just reading people's reviews a lot of people whose opinions i respect that's what i got out of it yeah i had a good time i also had a good time Mm -hmm. and i would recommend seeing godzilla king of the monsters i just hope they keep making godzilla movies if they keep making them i'll go see well i mean godzilla versus king kong is already in the can like it's done shooting great so it's gonna come out i'm glad it got in under the wire (laughs) yeah because there ain't gonna be any godzilla movies after that yeah (laughs) 